This is the Mile High Five podcast with Carl Jensen and Doug Cunnington. We have authentic conversations about the journey to Phi, health, happiness, and some very odd tangents. We interview Phi experts, side hustlers, people on their way to Phi, and those who have reached the other side. Join us every week, and if you want the show notes and links and all that other stuff, head over to milehighfi.com. Hello, world. Welcome to the Mile High Five podcast. I'm Carl Jensen with my co-host. I'm Doug Cunnington. And we have a very special guest today, and I'm super excited about this one. There's only been, Doug, there's only been two people I've met in the whole finance community that I've been able to have a good conversation about stocks, because that's kind of a taboo subject in the financial independence community. I met Brian Feraldi at Economy, and yeah, we started talking about all the stock stuff that I love to talk about, but I just don't meet many humans. And I didn't give Brian a chance to introduce himself, which I kind of already did, but tell us who you are and what you did do, even though I kind of did already. <laughs> hey, Doug. Uh, hey, Carl. I'm uh, Brian Feraldi. Um, uh, I'm best known because I've been a, a writer and uh, on podcasts for The Motley Fool for the last uh, seven years. But yeah, I got a chance to meet uh, both of you at Economy, and I think we just hit it off. Yeah, I got so excited I blew the introduction. Anyway, <laughs> I hear you have a good story about getting fired from possibly your first job. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that that that's very it happened to me. And I think it's a good it was a good prelude to me wanting to work on my own because the first job I got fired from pretty darn quickly and it wasn't my fault. But let me prove that to you. Uh so one of the first jobs that I had when I was um uh, growing up in, in Rhode Island was at a local clothing store called Bob Stores. It's like a regional chain uh, around here. Now, Bob Stores has, sells uh, men's clothing, women's clothing, and shoes. So they have like these three departments. And I was hired just as like a four retail person, which basically means you're a glorified janitor, right? You basically go around cleaning up uh, all, all, all the time. So one of the things that was required for us, it was very common for customers in one part of the store to pick something up and then put it in another part of the store. And it was on us to like return it to that part of the store. So this was a common thing. But when I first started working for them, our uniform were like these smocks that we wore. And these smocks were given to us when you showed up for work. And they had two pockets on them. And the pockets were like essentially company property. So it was no big deal for me to pick up something that wasn't in my department, put it in these pockets, and then return it to that department later. Well, one day, I show up to work, and they're like, we're not doing the smocks anymore, but here's a T-shirt. So everybody had these T-shirts to wear, but these T-shirts did not have pockets in them. Well, I'm doing my job, and in my shoe department section is this pair of women's gloves, okay? So I pick them up. I no longer have this smock, so I take the women's gloves, and I put them in my pocket, to my pants to be later returned. I forget about them completely, and I'm walking out of the store later, and I reach into my pocket to get my keys, right? And I find that I still have these women's gloves. No big deal. I'm at the register. I throw it in the little return bin and walk out to my car. Well, security caught all of this uh, on, on camera, and they ran out after me after the car, assuming that I stole this pair of women's gloves. So they're like, what did you do with these gloves? They sit me down. I'm like, uh, I returned them. They're in the little bin by the, uh, uh, by the cashier. And they brought me in, and they were interrogating me like, no, we have it on camera that you took these gloves. You put them in your pocket. You were trying to walk out of the store with them, and only because you saw us coming after you did you return these gloves. And this was all like complete shock to me. I was like, I promise you, I wasn't trying to steal these gloves. But 
they realized that they uh, they couldn't. I didn't actually steal the gloves. I never actually left the store. But they're like, well, we're not going to press charges, but you're fired. So that was my first experience with corporation being like, here's a policy. You clearly <laughs> screwed it up and you're fired from here. So, yeah, that was my first job. Oh, my God. It's better. It was gloves than like women's underwear. Can you imagine that? Yes. <laughs> Get on the floor, you pervert. Told to the judge. Yeah, right, right, right. But it's like, what the heck would I do with women's gloves? I was 50, like I'm 15 years old. You know what I mean? It's like if I was going to steal something, I would steal like shoes maybe that fit me. I don't know. There's a thought. Wow, man. Well, we're not going to talk about women's gloves the whole time, but maybe <laughs> just a few more minutes here. We're going to talk about investing, though, and we're going to jump in the deep end here. So here's a scenario, Brian. A 22-year-old comes up to you and says, Brian, give me one piece of advice about money, and I promise I'll follow it. What would you tell them? Uh, so one piece of advice that I think everybody can follow that broadly applies is save 20% of your income and use it to build wealth. Period. Right? Build wealth can mean a whole bunch of different things, depending on what stage of your life you're in. That could mean pay off debt, you're building wealth. Uh, buy a house, you're building wealth. Invest in your 401k, you're building wealth. But Building wealth requires savings, and so many people skip that part because we're just so used to spending everything that we make. So if there was a blanket rule that I could apply to everybody, take 20% of your income, no matter what it is, and use it to build wealth, I think everybody would be better off financially. And where does the 20% come from? Uh, a rough number I pulled out of uh, nowhere. And obviously that's not realistic for everybody. If you're just starting out of your career, usually your, your, your income is so low that like just covering your expenses is, is, is a challenge. But as your income grows, it becomes easier and easier to save a portion of your wealth. But broadly speaking, even if you're, even if you're just starting out, if you house hack or live, there are so many ways to live cheaply, especially focus on like the big three, right? Food, housing, transportation. I still think it's possible to save a decent chunk of your, of your income. But broadly speaking, 20%, I think is a good target for everybody. So I've got a quick follow-up. I've got a lot of younger family members and sometimes they'll figure out what I do. I've got this blog where I write about money and occasionally they'll ask me for advice and I think they're doing it just to be nice because I don't think anyone has ever followed anything. Does Do your family members ever ask you for advice and do you think they take it or follow it? Uh, occasionally it depends on the family member, right? Uh, some, uh, I've, I've given advice to, I would say my cousins, my younger cousins, uh, they, they ask me for advice and they take it, uh, very seriously. Same thing with my, my, uh, my, my siblings, uh, older parts of my, my family generally don't ask me for financial advice, but if somebody, if somebody asks me, of course, I'll be able, I'll be happy to tell them my thoughts. Okay. So you have a very unique investing style, I guess. And I say unique because I'm looking at it through the lens of the financial independence community. Uh, most of the people in our community, as I alluded to in the introduction, are into index funds. And you are a stock picker. Can you talk a little bit more about specifically how you invest? For example, are you 100% in stocks or how do you do it? Yeah, so I guess if I was to zoom out and just take a look at my broad investing uh, strategy, so my overarching portfolio makeup, when I think about my entire uh, network, I think of it in two different parts. The first part is like my personal finances, and the second part is my uh, investment. So let's start with the most important part, which is the personal uh, finances. I am an extremely conservative uh, personal finance person, right? I am like zero debt of any kind, including including my house 
house. My like I have zero debt to my name. I have a six month uh, emergency fund. We have multiple sources of income. We have a high savings rate. So on the personal finances part, I'm as conservative as they come. That extreme conservatism allows me to be 100% equities with my investments. And because, because I'm so conservative with my personal finances, I'm immune, at least financially, to volatility. Like volatility does not bother me at all. And I've seen my portfolio head to interesting places in both uh, directions. But I can basically look at that and say, well, that's the price of investing in, uh, in, in equities. Uh, but to double click on that a little bit further, I'm a huge fan of, of index funds, as, as big of a fan uh, as, as they come. And for all my retirement funds, that's what I'm in, invested in, surely for simplicity. So my 401k, my, my Roth, my wife's 401k, my wife's Roth, all of our retirement stuff that we have is just invested in index funds. It just goes in um, weekly or monthly or whatever the time period is. And, and that's just what it does. And I don't even think, I don't even think about uh, that at all. Any capital that I have beyond that, uh, for me, goes into my taxable uh, brokerage account. And that taxable brokerage account is 100% invested in individual stocks. I own about 80 stocks, uh, give or take. Um, but if you look at the top 10 positions, that accounts for about 50 to 60% of my overall assets. So that's broadly how my investments are categorized. And you mentioned the volatility. Is there some personality trait that you think you have or maybe you recognized as a younger person that you could handle such volatility and just emotionally keep it together? That is by far the hardest part about investing, right? It's seeing wild gyrations in your in your in your net worth uh, that that causes you emotionally to do uh, di different things. And I would say it's something that um, I wasn't naturally born with, but if you invest for long enough and you study market history, you just kind of gradually internalize what volatility is, is that, that volatility one is normal and, and that two, you, you can deal with it. So I started investing earnestly in like 2004, 2005. So I invested right on through uh, the great recession. So like so many people, my portfolio hit an all time high in 2007. And then everything I did thereafter was just down, 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 right? It didn't matter what you bought. If you bought in 2007 and kept on investing, you were losing money. And it always seemed like a bad decision because when I would buy stocks would fall, I would buy stocks would fall, I would buy stocks and fall. And even in like 2009, uh, after the market bottomed into 2010, do you guys, I don't know if you guys were investing seriously back then, but do you remember all the articles that were out there about this is a sucker's rally and this is, a, we're ready for a double dip recession. And I, I, I remember a friend of mine was interested in buying a house and he was thinking about how much money to put down. And I was like, well, what about if you only put like 20% down and then just use the rest to invest in the stock market? He looked at me like I had three heads. Like, like he was like, what in the stock market? Like, are you kidding me? This was 2009, uh, by the way. And of course, if you follow that, the stock market has been uh, straight up uh, since then. But because I invested through that and then now through COVID, I've seen just wild gyrations in the absolute value of my portfolio, but on individual holdings uh, uh, too. So I think it's just one of those things that over time, you just gradually become more comfortable with it. But the real trick for me is that, again, my personal finances are so conservative that whenever I look at my investments, I'm like, I don't need to touch this money 
uh, for years, right? There's nothing that I need this money for to like live my lifestyle. So because of that, I, I can zoom out and take a broader term of view. And that's how I deal with volatility. Yeah, we're going to talk about your book in a little bit. But as long as you believe what you say in your book, that everything is up and to the right over the long term, nothing in the short term really matters that much, right? Like volatility, if you look at it that way, volatility might be an opportunity. Yeah, vol if you study market history, the, the, the long-term results are very clear, right? Putting long-term capital in the U.S. stock market has historically been a fantastic move. The S&P 500 goes up about, uh, delivers investors a return about 10% per year after you subtract out inflation. That's a real return of 6 to 7% per year. And that asset class out outperforms almost everything uh, else. However, to earn that 10% return, the price of that 10% return that you get is very high volatility and random uh, volatility, random volatility too. So I've just internalized by looking at market history and looking at what's happened with my portfolio that if I want that 10% return or even, even more with individual stock picking, the price of that return is extreme volatility in the short term perpetually. What investors do you look up to and why? Oh, the answer there is very, 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 very long. I've learned so much about investing by studying, of course, uh, the greats. So Warren Buffett, for sure. Charlie Munger, for sure. Peter Lynch, Seth Klarman, uh, et cetera. Uh, but a couple of uh, investors that I've discovered through The Motley Fool, I would say, have influenced my style uh, the most. So, so the first would be David Gardner. He's the co-founder of The Motley Fool, and he is such a differentiated thinker and investor. He taught me so much about how to think about stocks and valuations and essentially buy great companies early, hold them voraciously. That style of investing works. There's a, another investor that's influenced me greatly that's not nearly as well known as David Gardner, and that's an investor named Tom Angle. Tom Angle was like the original fire guy, right? He, he, he worked for nine years starting in the 1970s and saved up enough money and is such a good investor that he's lived off his portfolio for 40 years since then, starting in the 1980s. And one thing that he does is the Motley Fool has these discussion boards where investors can post ideas and share with each other. And he has been so generous with posting his thoughts and his portfolio and how he thinks about uh, cash, cash, cash management. So he is someone that I've learned a tremendous amount from that's not very well known. But again, the guy has lived off of his portfolio for 40 years, and he does so primarily by investing in individual stocks. So he's someone that I've learned a lot from. Cool. You said something, I listened to your appearance on the Choose FI podcast recently, and you said something that cracked me up, but I think was a pretty cool lesson. And I, I'm paraphrasing here. I think what you said is you were talking about investing during COVID and maybe some of the GameStop shit that was going on. You said what these investors learned, unfortunately, is that the stocks only go up. Can you discuss that? Yeah. The last two years have been the weirdest years of investing that I've, I, I've ever seen, right? Uh, think about back what happened. Uh, so rewind the clock to January of 2020. The stock market was at all-time highs uh, back then. And then, of course, COVID came along. And what happened next? The fastest bear market in U.S. stock market history, right? Over the course of like three weeks or four weeks, essentially, the stock market peaked the trough, fell like 30 percent or something like that. At the same time, the news headlines were awful, right? Uh, think about how much our lives changed in March of 2020. Meanwhile, the stock market was declining. 
Well, if you were to ask me what's going to happen next to the stock market, I would have said more of this, right? Stocks are just going to keep going down given, given what's happening in the world right now. And unfortunately, what actually happened was so many people were stuck at home and they decided for the first time, I have nothing else to do. I'm finally going to learn about this investing thing. And they started to put money in the market. And once the market bottomed in March of 2020, what happened next? Straight up right? Straight up. And it really didn't matter what kind of investment you make. In fact, the riskier the stock that you picked or the riskier the investment you make, the bigger your returns were. So, so many people, their first experience when the market was buy anything, immediately rewarded for, for buying that thing and stocks only go up. And how could they not think that? So many people were starting in April of 2020, and then day after day, week after week, month after month, they saw the value of their portfolios going up, up, up. Of course, that's the wrong lesson to learn from, from the stock market, right? If you look at the long-term history of the stock market, the trends are overwhelmingly positive, but there are big, po um, big pockets of time when stocks do nothing but go down. And that's actually what we've seen over the last roughly year or, or so. All those stocks that were hyperinflated in 2020 have, got, have done nothing but go down uh, over the last year. But I remember listening to like some podcasts of newer investors in late 2020. And they were talking about how they expected 20% returns uh, going forward uh, indefinitely. And why do they think that? Well, the returns in 2020 were 50%. So how hard can it be to get 20% uh, annualized returns? But unfortunately, a lot of those people have learned over the last years that investing isn't that easy. I wonder if there's a cognitive bias associated with experiences that happened to you early on like that. I'm thinking of myself here because when I started investing, I'm a little bit older. It was right when the dot-com thing happened. So I, I was all hyped up. And I remember I had this one index. It was not an index fund. It was a normal mutual fund called Munder NetNet that I bought for 10 bucks. It went to 120 and then went to zero <laughs> when everything crashed. And then the same thing happened. Apparently, I hadn't learned my lesson when the Great Recession happened because I stopped investing at that point, which was obviously the exact opposite of what you're supposed to do. You don't stop buying. Warren Buffett quote, you don't stop shopping when the store's on sale. But now I'm different. I had to go through those two experiences to learn, though, and lots of thought. Uh, yeah, what would you tell someone who's been through something like this? In either case, like a shitty Sequence returns are a really great one to get their mind right. Well, to, to me, I, it always comes back to the fact of what is it that drives stock stock returns over long periods of time? Take any successful investment that that you, you've heard of. Uh, Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google, Chipotle, Lululemon, Nike, like any of the great investments that we've seen over the last 10, 20, 30 years. What is the thing that made those companies' stocks go up? Uh, so, so so much over a long period of time. The answer is the underlying business, right? If you rewind the clock 30 years and look at Starbucks revenue and profits and compare that to what's happening today, it's night and day. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it wouldn't surprise me if Starbucks revenue over the last 30 years was up like 200 fold and its profits were up like 2000 fold or something along those lines. So Starbucks, the business is so much bigger. There are so many more stores. They're selling so many more cups of coffee. They have different types of things that they're selling. And the underlying business is 
immensely profitable today when compared to that was a decade ago, two decades ago, or three decades ago. That is the thing that caused Starbucks to go from a small cap stock to one of the largest cap stock restaurant stocks uh, that exists today. The same story is true of Google, of Facebook, of Amazon, of Netflix. Every great investment that you've ever heard of is the business is substantially bigger today than it was uh, many years ago. Now, all of those stocks, all the greatest stocks uh, of all times, were guaranteed at some point to go through a catastrophic loss up period, peak to trough, even Berkshire Hathaway, right? Big, boring, stable Berkshire Hathaway has peaked to trough fallen 50% more than four times uh, in, in its history. And the numbers are even more extreme for companies like Amazon. Amazon peak to trough dropped 92% from 2000 to 2002. And yet, if you bought even at that peak price in 2000, you've done unbelievably well. So for me, it always gets back to what are the things that cause stocks and stock prices to go up over long periods of time? Answer is the underlying business. That's where I focus all my time and attention. And that's what I try and teach people to do. If you focus on the business and you buy a good business and hold it for long periods of time, you'll do well. If you buy a bad business, uh, you won't. It's really as simple as that. Yeah. This speaks to my heart. And you're talking about 50% drawdowns. What I've been thinking about lately is a stock we talked about in Cincinnati, and that is Tesla. The business is probably doing better than it's ever had. They're about to open two new factories. They have such incredible demand that they've raised prices twice in the past week, yet the stock is down 50% from its all-time high. And maybe it was high due to some macro situation, but it cracks me up that this company is on fire. They are killing it right now. I was going to say they're firing on all cylinders, but that's like internal combustion. They're spinning on all rotors, yet yet it's down. So. Yeah. I'm looking at Tesla right now. So I bought Tesla soon after the IPO, and I'm looking at Tesla's revenue. So Tesla's revenue over the last uh, what's it, 12 years now is up 50,000%. 50,000%. I don't even know what it was 20 years ago, uh, 12 years ago, but last over the last year, it grew to $54 billion. So it went from minuscule to $54 billion in revenue. And if you followed uh, gross profit, if you follow the story like Carl does, there's no doubt that Tesla today is in a completely different uh, place than it was five years ago and 10 years ago. That's why the stock is up so, so much. The underlying business has performed extremely well. But what's so confusing, uh, Carl, is, is just what you just said. How can the company be firing? all cylinders, raising prices, opening new factories, everything's going well, and yet the stock is currently down uh, 32% from its November highs. That's investing. Yeah. I'd like to talk a little bit about more about growth investing, which you said you are. You are a growth investor, correct, Brian? Yes, primarily. What, yeah. One thing I've thought about, so if you're a dividend investor or like an old school value investor, you're more quantitative. You're looking at numbers and dividends and you're looking at all that. But if you're a growth investor, you have to look at more qualitative stuff. For example, the quality of the leader, their market opportunity, stuff like that. And one example I think of, I bought Facebook at the IPO. And I remember there were two arguments against buying Facebook when I IPO'd. The first one was they're not going to be able to transition to mobile. Back then, they were pretty much a desktop operation. I don't think they even had a mobile app, or maybe they did, but it was primitive. The second one was 
that they had no earnings at the time. And my thoughts for those two were, they're a tech company. I made an iPhone app. Of course, Facebook is going to figure out how to make an app. <laughs> That's a stupid argument. My other one was when they IPO, they had hardly, I don't think they had any ads on the platform at that time. So I'm like, as soon as they put ads on this thing, their daily active users are increasing, their monthly active users are increasing, they're going to kill it. So what do you think about that? Am I full of shit here? Or how much of of these qualitative measures should a growth investor pay attention to? And they're much more difficult because numbers are easy, but this kind of stuff, assessing the competency of a leader or a market opportunity might be a lot more difficult. Yeah, I, I think even if you're a value investor, you still have to take into uh, a, a factor, qual qualitative factors, right? So every every investor, every invest, good investor that I know has has research process that thinks about uh, both. Sure, you can look backwards at the at the numbers, and you can actually track and measure things like revenue, margins, free cash flow. Uh, you can even do some analysis on like customer acquisition costs um, and uh, and what the stock has done. Do they beat estimates? Do they miss estimates? All those kind of things are just quantitative uh, factors. But to your point, good investing is really about marrying that with qualitative factors and really thinking things through like the business model, the competitive advantage, how much stock do the insiders uh, own? Is this company mission-driven, if that matters to you? Does they follow ESG principles, if that matters to you? So I think good investing is marrying those two principles. It's using the numbers and qualitative things to make decisions. Awesome. How By the way, I, I don't know if you still own Facebook stock today and have, but good on you if you do, because if you bought at the IPO, then what happened over the next couple of months was pure misery, right? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you remember, Facebook I stock do. priced at like 44. 42. And then, um, immediately, 42. And then immediately, like over the couple, next couple of months, dropped to like 15 or yes. something like that. It was a gut-wrenching loss. But yet, if you bought at that IPO price and held uh, held to today, you're currently up multi-bagger returns, I, right? Even after the huge drop we've seen. Yeah. I, I'll tell you what, I remember all that stuff happening. I bought a thousand shares at IPO and then I bought a thousand shares at 19 and it didn't matter to me because I believed in my long-term hypothesis and I didn't see anything to deter that or to tell me that what I thought was going to happen was wrong. So I saw that drop as an opportunity, and I've seen drops with Tesla recently as an opportunity too, as long as I believe in the company and I think what I think is going to be right. But I think it's opportunity and it doesn't bother me. It's it's great. Well, yeah. So you, so you, you have you, the 2,000 shares? I, I've since sold 500. I have 1,500 left over. Okay. Good. Sorry. Still good on you. That's a big position in Facebook. And I sold them to or buy Meta. Meta. Yeah, Meta. My I usually never sell. I like the uh, Warren Buffett thing. Try to sell stocks that you can be confident for the next ten years or longer. The only reason I sold it was to invest in the co-working space. Actually, okay, there you go. It's worth it. <laughs> so, Brian, how will your investing style change as you grow older? Uh, that's a question that I can't really answer honestly. I can tell you that my investing style today is different than it was five years ago and drastically different than it was 10 years ago. So it would be uh, insincere of me to say, oh, what I'm doing now, I'm going to stick with uh, for the rest of my life because markets change, people change, risk tolerances change, and all that kind of stuff uh, changes. I can tell you that right now, 
especially where interest rates are and inflation is, I have like z- I have zero interest in adding bonds to my portfolio. Right, uh, the, the, the interest rates are far too low for for me to be at all uh, interested uh, in 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 really ever owning that. Until I saw inflation really come down and interest rates really come up, I, I probably will just avoid bonds. Um, uh, altogether. However, as I as I get older, depending on what happens with uh, the stock market, I could see myself slowly making my portfolio more conservative. Likely for me, that would mean shifting more of my portfolio towards um, more predictable, stable, dividend-paying stocks um, than, than kind of the, the growth uh, bent that I have uh, r- right now. Um, also, like way down the road, once I quote-unquote retire, which I'll never I have no plans on ever retire, retiring, um, but I could see myself eventually boosting my cash position even higher than it is today to just add in some even more uh, cushion uh, to, to my life. But I don't have a good answer for you than to say that wherever I am in life, I'll, I'll, I'll look at what's happening in markets and how I'm feeling and my personal situation, and I'll adjust my investing policy accordingly. You said you have no plans to retire, and I suspect that's because you love what you do. And if you love what you do, are you really working? Right, totally. Uh, I, 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 when I, uh, I was in, I was following the fire footprints before I, I knew what the term fire was. Right, saving fifty percent of my, of my income, uh, investing like, uh, investing crazy. Um, so I love everything about fire and fire principles. But I've since, like so many people, I think I've realized over the last five years, it's not the RE that's interesting. It's the FI that's so, so interesting. Um, so that's where I'm really focused right now. Absolutely. We weren't going to talk about this, and I'm not going to ask any more questions, but you are going to be at FinCon, correct, Brian? Or? Oh, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. I would love it if we could have another interview to explore more of those ideas when we're at FinCon. Let's do we it. could do an in-person interview. Yeah. And I'll, I have a couple parties there, too, which I'll tell you about. Secret, secret parties. Awesome. Oh, nice. Very cool. Not Orlando, even this, Orlando this year, right? Yeah. Orlando. That's right. All right. Are we ready to transition to the book stuff? Yeah. Let's talk about your new book that comes out. By the time you hear this, your book will probably be out. It comes out beginning of April, correct? April 4th, 5th? April, April 5th is the publishing date. Yes. Okay, cool. So why did you write the book? And tell us the name of the book too, please. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the title of the book is Why Does the Stock Market Go Up? Everything You Should Have Been Taught About Investing in School uh, but, but Weren't. And um, I, before I wrote this book, for, first off, while I am an author, while I'm a writer for The Motley Fool, you guys should know that I am a terrible speller. I am terrible at grammar. My SAT scores on the English portion were subpar, right? So writing, uh, grammar, English, all that is, 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 is foreign to me. Like I'm naturally bad at those things. So if you were to add, told me 20 years ago, oh, you're going to write a book someday, I would have been like, like no way, right? There's no way that that would happen. And so many authors that I talked to ahead of time, I was asking them for advice one is uh, Jason Zweig at the, the Wall Street Journal. He has this wonderful blog post about writing a book. And uh, bullet point number one is don't write a book, right? Bullet point number two is seriously don't write a book, right? <laughs> Three, you should only write a book if you can't imagine the world existing without the book uh, be, being in it, right? That's, that's, the, that's the only reason you should ever write a book because it's so painful, so long to write a book. Um, and generally speaking, most books don't really sell that well. So there's not really like a, a financial reward for doing so. So you should only write a book if you, if you can't imagine it not existing uh, in the world. So 
check that box uh, for me. There are thousands of investing books out there, right? Do, do we really need another book about uh, in, investing? And I've read all the great classic books about Buffett and Peter Lynch, uh, The Motley Fool, Seth Klarman, etc. They're all, all, all wonderful. Uh, J.L. Collins' book in particular, uh, released in the last couple of years, The Simple Path to Wealth, is, is just so fantastic. And all of them largely say the same things, right? Uh, save a whole bunch of your income, invest in, in, in stocks, uh, have a long-term mindset, be able to uh, withstand drawdowns, and over time, you'll, you'll do great. And I read that, and that's such great advice. But the question that I've always had is, all right, I see the chart, right? I see the long-term S&P 500 and it goes up. Why does that happen? What is the thing that makes that S&P 500 go up? Because it's never been explained simply the, the underlying thing that makes that happen. And so many books that I read just like, here's what's happened. Yes, the market will crash, but it always comes back. And I'm like, well, why? Why does it come back? Like, what is the mechanism that causes the stock market to eventually uh, come back? And I've been waiting for years for somebody to write that book that just explains in simple terms why the stock market goes up over time. But the, there's there's no such book that it's existed. So uh, after waiting for years for somebody else to write it, I said, well, maybe I'm the one that's supposed to write to this book and really explain in super simple terms to people why the stock market goes up and why it's such a good idea to invest in that over the long term. So that was that was the premise of the book. It's really about answering that question. Yeah, you spoke to my heart when we, we were walking around Cincinnati and you told me that you wrote this book and what it's going to be about. I'm like, holy shit, because I've had the exact same thought and I've actually asked that question of Jail Collins and... Uh, Mad scientist, Brendan. I'm not sure if you've ever met him, but, mm. and I've never gotten a good answer. And I want to know the nuts and bolts. Okay, it's up and to the right, but why? I really yes. want to be confident that that is going to continue to happen, and I want to know the mechanism so I can be confident in these investments. So, yeah, I really appreciate that someone finally wrote this fucking book. And 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 uh, just to put some numbers on it, in America, right? In America alone, there's a hundred million people that have money in the stock market, right? The vast majority of that is in 401ks and IRAs. And I have zero data to back this up, but I just know if you ask, uh, if you did a poll of those 100 million people and said, why does the stock market go up? 99% of the time you'd get the wrong answer, right? 99% of the time people just would have no clue as to what it is that causes the market to go up. And I myself had no idea. And that's even though I was uh, I was investing and I love studying this stuff. Um, but the good news is, is it's not hard, right? There's nothing that's like complex about understanding why the stock market goes up. It's just that it's never been explained uh, simply. So I wrote this book mostly to be like, when somebody comes to you and they have no clue about investing, what's like the first book that you recommend to them to be like, here's a very simple on-ramp to understanding investing, right? There was no like real great book that I could immediately give to people. So that's what I intended this book to be. It's like, it's not detailed about here's how to analyze a business or here's how to analyze a stock. It's, it's none of that. It's just the very basics of stocks and stock investing. And who is this book for? So you kind of alluded to, you know, someone coming in with maybe not much of a background, anyone else in mind? 
Yeah, so I really wrote this book with myself in mind 17 years ago when I first graduated uh, from, from college, right? I, again, I read so many books, but there wasn't one that really just explained the extreme basics uh, of the market. So that's what I had in mind is myself 17 years about when I knew absolutely nothing about the market. And the other person I had in mind was my mom. My mom is somebody that... Um, is scared to death of 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 the st- of the stock market. Um, she doesn't understand how it works. Uh, she's much happier to just keep her money in a very safe bank account or a CD. She gets that. She understands that. She doesn't like uh, volatility. But again, I, it's I I think that. I could explain how the stock market works to my mom if I did it simply enough. So those are the people that I had in mind. But really, it's designed for people that I would say are right out of college or right when you're setting up a 401k. That's like a pivotal moment for a lot of people. And so many people just skip over that. They're like, take money out of my paycheck. I don't get it back till I'm 65. Pass. Right. There's no and it's just not explained uh, why you should should do that. So that's what I had in mind. How long did it take you to write the book and was it as excruciating as you thought it was going to be? Yep. And and this is a simple book too, right? So there are, I, I wrote it to be as easy to read and digestible as possible. So it's only like 200 pages long and there's 60, uh, 68 chapters in there. So the chapters are like one to three pages long max. Um, so I want it to be as easy to read as possible. But even that, a relatively simplistic book to read uh, still took me uh, a year of writing in it every single uh, day and then almost another year to, to, to edit it. So even a simple book like this, that. Maybe it's because I'm a slow, uh, bad writer. It uh, still took me, uh, basically, it'll be just, just shy of uh, 18 months uh, from start to, to actually being published. And any surprises along the way? Anything easier than you thought or harder than you thought or anything in general? Yeah, it's just very painful uh, to do. So <laughs> I, 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 I took very seriously the Seinfeld method of writing. Are you guys familiar with this? How Jerry Seinfeld writes? Yeah, tell uh, so, us. Yeah. Okay. So he, he's been asked so many times, like, how do you, how do you tell better jokes? And he, he has a rule of basically you get a a calendar and every time you write a joke, it doesn't matter if you're writing for one second or an hour, you put an X on the calendar. I wrote jokes this day. And he says, try and get as many days in a row as you possibly can. And then once you get some some, some momentum going, make sure that the chain is never broken. So I did that. So every single day, I made a rule for myself that I had to write in the book. And it didn't matter if I opened it up, changed one, one word, and then, went to, and then went to bed, or if I opened it up and wrote uh, 10 or, or 20 pages. I had to write it every single day. So I'm, I'm happy to say that I achieved that. So from the time I started writing till it was done with the first draft, I touched it every single day. And that method really helped me to make sure I actually did it. And then did you have any sort of weird habits? I think Jerry says he writes like in a, a yellow legal pad and like a blue Bic pen, like he's very regimented. Did you have anything like that where you only went to one coffee shop or certain time of day or anything? Uh, I wrote the book primarily after my kids went to bed uh, at night. So uh, they go to bed around 8, 8.30. And this was mostly through the teeth of the pandemic, right? So they would hmm. go to bed. I would come down to my uh, computer and I would write for between 10 minutes and an hour. Um, so it was always, it was written Almost 90% of it was written between 8.30 and 9.30 uh, p.m. at night. And it was just in a simple Google Doc that I did it. Nice. 
Do you have any plans for a second book? Have you considered that after the pain of this one? Or and so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know so many people are like, so when are you going to write another one? I was like, oh my God, it was so painful uh, to write this one. I don't want to start that uh, process uh, from the beginning again. But I, it would be the same thing that I said before. I would have to find an idea that's so compelling to me that I would go through, run through that brick wall uh, again, simply because I didn't. I I, I need that thing to exist uh, in the world. So far, I haven't found that idea that's like this needs to exist. Um, and again, I'm, I'm naturally not a good uh, writer or with grammar, so uh, I have no plans to write a second book right now. Okay. And before we go on to our, our last part of the interview, we'll be giving away copies. Uh, if you're subscribed to our email list, we'll give away five copies. Uh, Doug, tell people how to subscribe to our email list. Head over to milehighfi.club, enter your name and email, and then you'll be entered. So I, I guess they don't need to do anything else, right? Yeah, yeah. Just join the Mile High Fi Club, and I'll you'll if you get an email from us, we will you get a free book. Yeah, that that club is not as dirty as it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> a little dirty, but not as dirty as it sounds. Okay, is there anything else you'd like to tell the audience about the book, Brian? No, that, 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 that's it. I hope that um, uh, it's like any any piece of content. You guys are content creators, and it's so funny to be like. You never know what the reception is going to be to any content that you create. Like you could put your heart and soul into something and it could just fall flat or you can you can like casually put something out there and it goes like uh, viral. So it's always so interesting to see uh, how how. Uh, predicting what I think is going to happen, uh, so I'm really interested to see when actual people that I don't know read it what the what the what the feedback is. And do you have like a gauge of success? And if if you don't want to share it, that's fine. But is there some metric that you're looking at where you're like, hey, this did what I thought, or are you a little bit easier going with this book launch? Yeah, so uh, I can tell you, I, I I know the statistics, right? There are literally thousands of books published every day. I think the average book in its lifetime sells less than a thousand copies. If you can sell five thousand copies, that's really good. If you can sell ten thousand copies, that's like great. So if I could get to ten thousand copies, I would be like, I did it, right? That's 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 wonderful for me. But the real thing that I'm looking for is just somebody to pick it up, read it, and say, I now understand the stock market. Send me a message on Twitter or send me an email or something like that. That would be success to me. Awesome. Nice. All right. Well, we have one final question here. What does your perfect day look like? So I love this question. I, I really think it's an exercise that not enough people do. Uh, this is something I think about uh, constantly, uh, though. So my my perfect day, um, and it doesn't matter if it's a weekday or a weekend, would be uh, wake up naturally, uh, spend some time working on whatever motivates me that day, right? Whatever my mind is fixated on. Uh, for the most part, that's content creation and researching the stock market. That's just what my mind is naturally interested in. Um, exercise of some kind, specifically going for a walk, going for a run, uh, having a good meal with my family, and spending some quality time with my friends. Uh, that, that could be around a campfire. It could be playing a board game. Uh, once a week, I go trivia, uh, play trivia at the local bar near me. So as long as it was spending time with my family, uh, spending time with my friends, doing what I want, and waking up and going to bed whenever I feel like it, that to me is a fantastic day. You have, we posed this question to you, and, and on the outline, you answered it. And one of the things you said on here is go for a walk. And that resonates with me too, because I love going for walks. I do some of my best thinking. And 
I just listened. Have you listened to the Morgan Housel interview on Tim Ferriss yet? I have. Yep. Yeah. And Morgan Housel says the same thing about how much he likes to go for a walk and how he does thinking. Do you think when you go for a walk or are you just wandering around? Oh, I always start out with a podcast. I'm a podcast junkie, so I always put them on. But invariably, my mind will wander into whatever it is. And when I'm starting to wander, I always pause the podcast and allow my mind to kind of ruminate on that idea. And I have my phone with me, so if I, I can take notes um, if, if, if I need to. But yeah, walking and thinking for me is 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 one one and one uh so yeah just just like morgan it's it's amazing how many ideas you get from life when you're just like walking and do you walk sort of in nature or more like in a city or suburban setting I'm a, I'm a, I'm in the suburbs, uh, so I have a couple of loops in my house that are just like um, you know, there's two ways that I can go, and I pick I pick one or two uh, uh, each day. That's kind of the downside to the suburbs is the number of ways that you can go is relatively limited by based on the local uh, geography. But I also love going on uh, hikes, um, and there's tons of there's tons of great hikes uh, around me. Come out to Colorado, man! The yeah, foothills are right I've here. Been to Colorado many many times. It's an awesome state. Cool. All right. Well, where can people find you, Brian? Uh, the best place to find me are on Twitter. That's where I'm uh, the most active, and that's at Brian Feraldi. And then my YouTube channel is the second place I'm most active, and that is uh, at uh, Brian Feraldi on there too. But I'm, I'm on all the social platforms. It's just that those two is where I spend most of my time. Awesome. We'll link up for all that stuff. And this has been fantastic. Thanks a lot. Yeah, I can't wait to talk more at FitCon. Uh, stay tuned. I look forward to seeing you there, and I look forward to those awesome behind-the-scenes parties, too. (laughs) Yeah, I can't wait to find out what they are. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to the show. That was the Mile High Five podcast, and I'm Doug Cunnington, the balder host, and Carl Jensen is the cool, sexy one. If you dig the show, please do three things for us. Number one, tell a friend, a family member, an enemy about the show. We really don't care who you tell. Maybe forward them a specific show that you know that they will like. It's the single most helpful thing that you can do to spread the word. It's like giving us a virtual high five and uh, actually we don't give high fives in, in person so the virtual kind's pretty good. And more importantly, your friend or family member or even your enemy will appreciate the fact that you were thinking of them. Number two, make sure you're following or subscribed on your podcast app Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, YouTube, whatever you're using, and that way you won't miss a show. And number three, please leave us a rating and review. We read them on the show occasionally, and you might hear yours out there on an upcoming episode. Quick disclaimer, this show is not financial or legal advice. I'd actually be surprised if it sounded like it. It's really just for entertainment, and that's at least what we're hoping for. But seriously, get advice from professionals. Carl and I are just two guys with microphones that sit in my basement and talk. So we'll catch y'all next week.